Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, in the text of scripture that we're looking at, Luke 18, 18, you really need to look at 18, 17. Because what's happening in the context of the letter is Jesus has just said that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a little child. We saw this at the beginning of the new year that you have to be helpless in order to enter the kingdom of God. We don't like helpless. But what happens in the text under the providence of God is that immediately someone comes who doesn't like being helpless. And as Jesus engages this rich ruler, the disciples are shocked by his response. He walks away from Jesus. And um, it puts the fear of the Lord in them, the disciples. And Jesus addresses this scene as a way to teach them that all of us have to be helpless. If you won't embrace helplessness, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I don't know how many of you were watching the football game on Monday night with the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati um, Bengals, but there was a moment early in the game where DeMar Hamlin, number three for the Buffalo Bills, uh, had a normal tackle, didn't look like much of a tackle. If you saw it, he tackled the guy, stood back up, and then dropped backwards. Immediately went into cardiac arrest. And we've actually had a couple of guys from our church that have ex had gone through exactly that. Andy Keppel, uh, running our tech at the back, ha had it happen to him as well. Just instantly, his heart stops beating. And if you were watching the game or you followed the news later, you saw the reaction of everyone immediately on the field. Uh, which team you were on didn't matter. Because this was a game that affected the playoffs, suddenly it didn't matter, right? You look at there and there's a group of Bills players and Bengals players all in a circle, huddled down on their knees. What are they doing? They're praying. Praying. Go to ESPN. And they got three announcers on there, and the, one of the announcers stops and says, I have to pray. And he starts praying on national television. And in that moment, there was acute helplessness. And I think there was double uh, kind of things going on. There is a moment where suddenly you realize we can't help him. I mean, the the medics were doing their best. Twice his heart stopped. They had to stop and get him going again and then get him into an ambulance and off. And then there was just kind of this, what do we do? There, we, we can't go on. And simultaneous with that, 
He's 24 years old. He's just started, you know, go in the NHL. He's got a or NFL. He's got Sam Canadian. I go to N- NHL, <laughs> NFL. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know. There's a sense in which not only do we feel helpless in helping him, we suddenly realize that could happen to any one of us. In life, we all get a sense of our mortality, and we can't rescue ourselves. And there's something about pondering that just enough for a moment to realize that physical life is not in our hands and spiritual life is not in our hands. And it's like the disciples are watching this rich ruler. And I I need to point this out to you, that when the disciples see this guy coming, he represents to them everything that good religion produces. He is moral. And that's clear as he interacts with Jesus and Jesus asks asks him some questions. He is prosperous. And the idea in their minds is, that he is blessed by God because his life is going so well. So not only is he moral, not only is he devout and religious, not only is he blessed by God, right, but he is influential. He has already been, he's a ruler. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Um, When Luke uses the word ruler, he never uses it positively. He's, he's the only one in the Gospels that calls him a ruler. And in the Gospel of Luke, there are only a few rulers mentioned. Herod the Great, Philip, and Herod the Tetrarch. And what Luke is trying to show to us in this passage is here is a guy who looks to us like he has it all together, and God favors him. And as we look at that, Luke is saying, but fundamentally, he's no different than Herod. He's no different than Philip, the, the Tetrarch, or, or Herod the Tetrarch. He's no different than them. Because underneath all of the religiosity, and underneath all of that, is a profound determination to do it in his own strength, and to prove it in his own power, and to rely on himself. So the question he asked Jesus is, what must what I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And then Jesus goes after the I do part. He goes after that. And you have to just imagine, when he walks away, it scares the disciples. Because they look at him and go, well, he's better than I am. And I need to tell you something, Waterbrook. You need to feel that today. We're not to look at the rich ruler and say to ourselves, what a big mistake. What we need to do is say, God, help me. That's what it means to be helpless. You will not enter the kingdom of God unless you are going to say, God, help me. But here's the glory. You can be as messed up and mixed up and as far. You could have walked into church this morning and thought, I don't belong here. For whatever reason, the way I thought last week, what my history is, you know, my, you know when, he, when he lists the Ten Commandments and, and everybody goes, or, or the, the rich ruler says, did it, did it, did it. 
Some of you went, did not do that. Did not do that. In that list, where it says, honor your father and mother, I just tell you, I did not do that. And you look at that list, and it already checks you out. And if you start to go, okay, I'm going to try to figure this out, I'm going to work it out, my dear friends, you missed the point of the text. Waterbrook cannot be a church where we come in and say, look what I did. Look, at, I got, a, I, I got a, a good week under my belt. I got my good parenting week, and I've got you know, my, my, my good giving to the church, my good service, my whatever it is, and you start to list all the things. My dear friends, we need to realize that unless the Lord builds a house, our labor is in vain. But here's the good news. As messed up as we are, God is greater. And as needy as we are, uh, Jesus is greater. And even though he is not a good ruler, there is a better ruler who is in the passage, who has come to save. So I want to repeat Keller's line because I think this is really helpful. We need to own it and be reminded of it. This is Keller's famous line about the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we dare believe. And I just want to stop there and say that's what's being taught in this text. As, uh, as much as I preach today, you are worse. That's not how to win friends and influence others. <laughs> but you know it. Or if you want me just to talk to myself and, you know, um, I'm worse than I imagine. Thank God we don't see us as God sees us in full light. Doesn't take much. But here's the good news of the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we dare believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we dared hope. That's the story of the gospel. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. So, so the question I just want to ask in this text, looking at this account that's given to us, is why do I need to feel my helplessness in order to enter the kingdom of God? And we can see several things in this text I just want to go through quickly, but let me remind you, we're going to communion today. So whatever you hear in this text, if the Holy Spirit goes, that's you, you go, thank you, Jesus. We're going to him and what he's done. So that's where we're headed. This is ending up in communion, where we take the bread and take the cup and realize Jesus has paid for our sins and done it all. And if you trust in him today, and I'm hoping some of you may trust him for the first time, or you trust him for the thousandth time again every day, hour by hour, every hour I need thee, Lord Jesus. As we come to it and we take the bread and we take the cup, we go, Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the true rich ruler who has come for us. So here's the first reason why we need to feel our helplessness. We can't see our sin without Jesus. We truly cannot see our sin. We are helpless to see our sin, recognition of sin. We need God to bring conviction of sin. It's impossible for us to realize how deeply sinful and desperately lost we are apart from Christ. So if you look at this text of Scripture, it says, And a ruler said to Jesus, after he heard Jesus say, You must become helpless. You, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom. He says, the good teacher, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is not a throwaway answer. It's a very carefully calculated, smart, wise, purposeful, inspired response. He says, why do you call me what? Good. 
And then he gives a doctrinal truth. There is no one is good except who? God alone. Why do you call me good? Now, you know what Jesus is doing there, right? He's saying what is true. Nobody's good but God. Why do you call me good, teacher? Because Jesus is saying, I am good and I am God. That's who's in the room. Christ is in the room. God has come into the world to deal with sin. Amazingly, he has come down from the highest place and entered our world because we're sinners in need of a Savior. Aren't you glad he came? The good God, that's what he's saying here. But he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so this is the first thing we need to see. God's goodness is exclusively his own. And there's a couple ways to think about that. But let me at least say this. When God made us, made Adam and Eve in the garden, he said they were very good. But why were they very good? Because they were made in his image. Right? They were created by him. So even their goodness is derivative. Ultimately, in the best of worlds, God, is, God alone is good in that way. And everything else is a display of his goodness. But they were good as reflections of him. But then they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And good was over. And good was over not just because of Adam and Eve, but everyone who descended from them. So Paul will say this in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. None understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you and I have a lot in common. We're sinners. Every leader, every Sunday school teacher, every elder, every tech person, every worship leader, every greeter at the door, every person that slinks in or marches in with their head held high is a sinner in need of a Savior. Right? Only God is good. God alone is good, Jesus says. But here's also what's good about God. God is good to show us we're not good. So Jesus has this conversation with the, the rich ruler who says, how do I inherit what must i do to inherit the kingdom of god and jesus says, knowing he's a law keeper a devout jew strictly legalistic he says well you know the the commandments and then he lists them do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness honor your father and mother and immediately the rich ruler responds and says all these i have kept from my youth he believes that. I doubt it, but Jesus doesn't argue it. Right? Or at least I, I can't even imagine what that's like. Since I was a youth, I honored my father and mother. Now Jesus, in giving the new covenant, takes it further. If you have been angry with your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. If you lusted after a woman in your heart, You've already committed adultery. Jesus cranks up the standards. So when you put those standards on it, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus goes with his argument. Jesus goes with it and says, okay, one more thing. And he goes for the jugular. He goes for the main argument. He says to him, well, just since he was rich, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me, and then you can enter the kingdom of God. Wow. 
Jesus is this great diagnostic surgeon. He's going after his thing. He's going right after his thing. It's, it's not like that's the one sin that is, has to be addressed. It's what his sin is. And he's actually going after the first part of the Ten Commandments, which is you are to have no other gods before me. You are to worship me and worship no one else. And this man finds out in his reaction to that command that he has another God in place of God. As devout as he is, his security, his salvation, his hope is not in the God that he's been saying he's worshiping. His hope is in the success and the blessing that he says that God has given him. And Jesus has some strong words to him that if he doesn't come, if he doesn't turn, if he doesn't repent, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Earlier in Luke 14, he says, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And in the scripture it says, this man was very sad. Do you understand the word perilupos that is used here in the Greek for very sad is the very same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified. This man walks away devastated because he loved his money. He was a lover of money. He walks away devastated. Now, the sad thing he he, is that he walks away, but here's the good thing. It, it's always good. Let me remind you this, friends. It's always good when God lays his finger on your idol and makes you choose. Always good when he does that. Because when he does that, you'll feel helpless. And I had people go out from the, after the first service and say to me what their idol was. And they said, the only way I can give that up to God is if God helps me. That's what you're supposed to feel from him. You're supposed to feel at this moment, I've got to give it to God. I've got to surrender it to God. But this is the, the God, here's the good news. God is so good, he'll put his finger on your idol. That's how good it is. Flannery O'Connor tells a story called Revelation. It's a short story. If you want to look up and read, it's only about 30 pages long. And as, as she tells the story of Mrs. Turpin, who goes to the doctor's office. She's in the South. She goes in because her husband, Claude, has been kicked by a, a cow. And he's got a contusion on his leg. And so they go in, and uh, Claude is sitting there, and she walks into the waiting room, and it's just a motley crew of people. And there's a kid that's sick who's like sitting across three seats, and she thinks that should be where Claude is sitting. She's looking at the mother like, why don't you straighten your kid up right now? You know. And so the whole thing is a dialogue between uh, Mrs. Turpin and some of the people in the lobby while they're waiting and a dialogue in her head about how thankful she is that she's not like the white trash around her. She actually thinks that. She actually thinks some pretty racist stuff, too, because she's from the South. And as Mrs. Turpin is talking through all these things and engaging some of the people in the room, going, I'm thankful that I'm a thankful person. She sounds like the Pharisee. I thank you, God, I'm not like these other people. 
And across from her, the daughter of one of the women who is there, who's look, the daughter's looking kind of sickly, is in college. She's come home for college on a break, and as she's listening to Mrs. Turpin, she's staring her down. And Mrs. Turpin is yap, yap, yapping about how good she is and chatting away, and in the middle of her self-congratulatory self-righteousness, the girl hurdles her college textbook right between the eyes and hits Mrs. Turpin upside the head. It smacks her. Miss Turpin goes down quick. And the girl doesn't just stop there. She tackles her. So the college girl tackles Mrs. Turpin. She's on top of her and says to her with fervent words, she says, go back to hell, you ugly warthog. That's what she says. Well, they tackle the girl and sedate her and take her out. And Mrs. Turpin is like shocked but she can't get the girl's words out of her head because somewhere down in her consciousness she knows that that was not from the girl it was from somewhere higher and so I want you to hear Mrs. Turpin process um, the thoughts in her head she's saying this she, she goes home and she has pigs they have a farm, and, and so she has to hose down the pigs because Claude can't do it. His leg is sore. And so she says, uh, it says, I am not, she said, a warthog from hell. She might have added, hmm, like Ron did there. Hmm. But the denial had no force. This is what goes on. The girl's eyes and her words, the girl's words, even the tone of her voice, low but clear, directed only to her brooked no repudiation. She had been singled out for the message. Though there was trash in the room to whom it might, might have justly applied, the full force of the fact struck her only now. She's talking about the white trash in the room. There was a woman there who was neglecting her own child, but she overlooked her. The message had been given to Ruby Turpin, a respectable, hardworking, church-going woman. That was a moment for Mrs. Turpin to listen and realize her sin, her racism, her pride, her self-righteous religiosity. But in that moment, it said her eyes dried, and instead of weeping, she became angry. So I want to tell you the second thing about this passage of Scripture where Jesus goes and talks to his disciples. We not only need, and this is what we need to pray, we need to say, God, help me see my sin. It's far deeper, far more profound than I ever recognized. It's an amazing thing about being a pastor. I have these weird conversations in my head thinking, what's it going to be like when I stand before God and think, what were you thinking of doing, even standing up there? You know what that's like? You can do that as a Sunday school teacher. Because I have no idea the depth. When I put the holiness of God in front of me, I'll realize it's a miracle that any of us our children of God. But not only do we need Christ to help us see our sin, to help us with that, but we also need to have Christ help us turn from our sin. We need help with repentance. I need to tell you this. This is not a self-help mission. No one here can repent from sin. It's not an ability. We need God to bring repentance from sin. It's impossible to leave our addiction to sin apart from the grace of God. You see the conversation happens immediately afterwards. Some people watch this guy walk away. Let me just stop and say this. Some of you have watched 
uh, professing pastors or Christians walk away, and it scared the daylights out of you. And you thought the same thing that they thought, who can be saved? Right? It makes you tremble. I'll tell you, nobody can save themselves. This text of Scripture, they, they say to Jesus, then who can be saved? And Jesus looks at them and says, with man it's what? Yeah, it doesn't say it's theoretically possible or he doesn't give them a stat. One percent will be able to return, repent from their sin. Gives them none of that. With man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. What are you supposed to take from that? What am I supposed to take from that? We need God to give us. It's the goodness of God not only to show us our sin, but to bring us to the right kind of repentance, the right kind of sorrow that makes us hate the sin and want to run from it. It is seductive. Sin is a drug. Greed is a drug. Idolatry is a drug. It's an addiction. And only God can break that by giving us a better addiction. Right, Tim? We need the expulsive power of a new affection. Puritan Tom Ch- Thomas Chalmers would say. We need something better. We need Jesus himself. So let me at least say this. You and I need to realize the strength of sin, the grip of sin, the lie of sin. You and I cannot break the power of sin. You remember Frodo in Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, as he goes to Mount Doom? He's going up with Sam, and as he's going to throw the ring into Mount Doom, the closer he gets, the harder it is. The power of the ring has an enslaving force upon him. Listen to how he describes it. He says, I am almost in its power now. I could not give it up, and if you tried to take it, I should go mad. That's why this man goes away very sorrowful. It's the power of the ring. It's his greed. I'm telling you, friends, it's the same power for you. Sin is bigger than you. Later, uh, Frodo says, I do not choose now to do what I came to do. He was supposed to get rid of the ring. I will not do this deed. Do you you remember how Frodo throws the ring into the fire? Gollum bites his finger off. Why does Tolkien write that? He's showing that unless someone else breaks the power of the sin, you'll never let it go. We're supposed to see that. And that's what you and I need to realize, that in this text of Scripture, we need Jesus to bring us to the kind of sorrow that brings repentance. It's not a problem that you sit shocked like they were Monday night football and going, wow, with fear and trembling. It's not a problem there, but just run to Jesus, turn to Jesus. Deep sorrow can be a starting point for change. It's, it's a revelation that can lead to repentance. Second Corinthians 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Can I just stop and say this? So you, you and I need to really hear this. We get in our minds the idea that riches are a blessing from God. What Jesus is teaching, it's not riches that are a blessing from God. Repentance is a blessing from God. Repentance is a gift from God. This text does not say try hard to repent, live in trembling. This says flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus. David Garland says, by pointing beyond any form of moral goodness to God himself, 
Jesus reprises the point of the, fair, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Entrance into the kingdom of God only comes by a miracle of God's grace. We need to say, Jesus, show me my sin. Let me see my sin. Then we need to pray, once we see it, Jesus, help me flee my sin. Because I'll return like a dog to vomit if you don't set me free. Isn't that true? Tom Schreiner says, human beings on their own cannot make a decision for the kingdom, but the grace of God secures the response needed. Our prayer must be, help me flee my sin. Some of you just, just pray that right now. You know what your addiction is. You know what your temptations are. You know what your struggles are. Don't sit there and think, okay, I'm going to go out 2023 and try harder. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Here's the last thing that we need to see, that when we read, run, run to Jesus, when we flee to Jesus, when we look to Jesus, he will bring restitution for sin and restoration from sin. You understand what's going on? Even if I repent, my repentance cannot pay for my past sin. If I try harder, you know, that's, some, that's what religion is. For, for a lot of people, religion is jump through religious um, gymnastics, and if you jump through enough gymnastics, you'll make up for all the mistakes in the past. My dear friends, you'll have to jump to eternity because you've sinned against the glorious and a holy God. That's the problem with our sin. You can't fix it but he can. And not only does this text promise as Jesus talks to his disciples when they, who can be saved? And he says, with you it's not possible, but with God it's possible. But then he announces that if you give up everything and, and give up everything that you're trusting in and come and follow him, he'll give you family and houses and blessings in this life and eternal life. What's he what's he? saying there he will give you everything you knew you need to be brought into the kingdom of God unless you become like a child you can't enter the kingdom of God you come to him and one of one of the things is he will pay all your past debt boy when when the political powers announced all college debt was going to be wiped out there's a lot of people going yeah right that debt is nothing nothing compared to the debt of sin against a holy God by humanity for all time. But Jesus did what he asked the rich ruler to do. He said to the rich ruler, come, take everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Why did Jesus say that? Because the, our heavenly father said that to him. He had all the riches of heaven. He had all the angels of heaven worshiping him. He had all the pleasures and the con contentment of heaven. And, and, and our heavenly father said to the son, take all your riches and give them away to the poor. The riches of your righteousness, the riches of your obedience, the riches of your holiness. Give it all away. Become poor, even to the point that they nail you on a cross and, and make you a sinner in their place. You become poor so that they might become rich. That's what Jesus is telling. Give it all up because you can't do what needs to be done, but I have come to do that very thing. Jesus is the rich ruler who has come to pay our debt. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. So that by his poverty you might become rich. You know, this has been one of my favorite helpful texts in my life. One is the fighter verse. When I started my ministry, I, I memorized Joshua 1, 9 as a guiding point to be courageous and to follow God's work word and to live for him but this one truly I say there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many more times in this life and in the in the age to come eternal life you see when when you come and follow God it'll cost you your family some of you it'll 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 cost you the approval of your social network but Jesus says if you give that all up and come to me I'm going to give you a family like you've never had and uh, when I moved a thousand miles away from my family and my relatives to become a pastor, I went to this verse and I said, give me a family. Give me brothers, give me mothers, give me fathers, give me sisters in this life and in the next life. And then when Mary Ann and I said, let's go to that huge metropolis of Victoria, <laughs> the mega church called Waterbrook, you know, I said to God, give us family. Give us friends. Give us homes. That's what he does. If you give it up, you won't regret it because he's that good. He's that gracious. Tom Wright says already, even in this present time, this new age breaks into our sad old world. With the life of Christian fellowship, there are new homes, new families, new possibilities that open up for those who leave behind the old ways. The church is called in every age to be that sort of community, a living example of the age that is yet to come. In that sort of selfless and trusting common life, church members themselves and the world around can get a glimpse what the new world is like and learn to live that way more and more. Isn't that great? He asked this rich ruler, just give it all. But what's it, what is he saying to him? And I'll give you an eternity of more if you trust me. My dear friends, we have to come today and say, Jesus, I can't see my sin. Show it to me. I can't but I worship. Show it to me. Jesus, I, I can't leave it behind. I, I'm, I feel as sad as this guy, we're not to look at him and condemn him. We go, that's me. I'm like everybody else in the, in the stadium when, with the bills. I think, that's me. I'm not, just, I'm not just the one praying, saying help. I'm DeMar. I'm, I'm dead unless somebody rescues me. And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm rescuing. And I'll do it by dying for you pay your sin that you might live. Isn't that good news? My friends, it's okay to be helpless. It's not okay to not be helpless. That might be a double negative that doesn't work, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Marianne, you can tell me later if that was proper. Or <laughs> was it okay? Okay, thanks. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Trying to have it all together isn't the way. Jesus has got it all together for you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you. 
because you love sinners and broken people, those who cannot keep and measure up to the standard of the law. Jesus, you came to be the true rich ruler. With all of your riches, you poured them out. You became poor so that we might become rich. Thank you. I can't see my sin. Help me. I can't flee my sin. Help me. I can't be free from my sin except through you. Thank you that with man it's impossible, but with you, Jesus, it's possible. Do that work in us, we pray, for your glory. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.